Hello, folks. This is Princess. You are listening to the Millennial Mustard Seed Podcast. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to share with your friends. Guys, I'm so happy that you're back here with me again tonight. This is your host, Rodney. Thank you for being here with the Millennial Mustard Seed Podcast. I got a really good episode in store for you tonight. I have Derek Gilbert here from A View from the Bunker, Sci Friday, Skywatch TV. I know you guys have heard of him. Listen, he's a wealth of information. This is a really exciting episode. Derek even talks about a potential dogman experience that he might have had at his house in the Ozarks. This is a wild roller coaster ride of an episode. Thank you for being here. Let's jump right into the show, guys. So Derek, it's a pleasure to have you here on the Millennial Mustard Sea Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. That's an honor. I, I always appreciate the opportunity to talk about this stuff. It's uh, fascinating. This is going to be uh, quite the ride for me and the audience. Derek, this was a news line from yesterday. I'm pretty sure you had to have heard about this, but there's a strange, mysterious metal monolith that was discovered in remote Utah. Any yeah, thoughts yeah. on that? Did you get a chance to look into that yet? Talked a little bit with uh, Steve Quayle about that yesterday. In fact, that'll be an interview that we'll put oh, wow. on uh, Skywatch TV tomorrow. Yeah, I, I honestly, I don't know what to make of it. I mean, this was dropped into a slot canyon in a rural uh, it, remote part of the Utah desert. And I'm not really sure what to make of it. I know that there are some out there who say, well, it must be aliens. Nah, I don't, I don't think so. But why would somebody do that? Steve's got a thought that maybe this is something that um, some agency within the government is using to monitor behavior of some sort from entities of some kind. So oh, I mean, wow. that, that's a possibility. That's interesting. Um, it, might, it, it might be somebody's idea of a uh, tribute to, uh, I don't know, Stanley Kubrick or Arthur C. Clarke. I don't know. But the monolith mm-hmm. from 2001, A Space Odyssey, was was black and uh, kind of a matte finish. This is uh, this is made of stainless steel, which, uh, you know, when I left mm-hmm. the metals business back in, 20, <laughs> in 2015, yeah, that's, that's a lot of money to drop into something like that. I mean, stainless steel isn't cheap, especially if you're going to finish it out and, you know, machine it the way they did. That's a big piece of stainless steel to just drop into the desert where nobody's going to see it except a bunch of sheep wandering around loose. And that's how the Utah, uh, <laughs> uh, the, the state of Utah found it. There were some uh, folks there with their, uh, I don't know, Department of Wildlife, I guess, counting sheep. And they saw this thing reflecting sunlight back at them. So they landed the copter and got a shot of it. The, the part of Utah that they're in looks like Jordan. It looks like ancient Moab. Um, or Edom. Yeah, it looks like that? ancient Edom, actually. Uh, it looks similar to Wadi Rum, which is that uh, red desert southeast of the Dead Sea. Um, I honestly don't know what to make of it. I, I don't think it's extraterrestrial. I don't think we have any serious evidence of extraterrestrial visitation, but we certainly have plenty of evidence of inhuman visitation over the centuries. I, I don't think this is it, but I honestly, I can only speculate. What do you think about you know, Sasquatch or Dogman, people having all these different sightings with modern day cryptids. I know the book of Enoch talks about the mixing of animals mm-hmm. with, you know, other animals and, and strange things like that. The Greeks, I was reading, there's a creature called the Sinocephaly, 
which I, I think it means the head of a dog on a man. Mm-hmm. And some of these reports I was reading about, even ancient explorers all the way up to 400 years ago would talk about going to Africa and to India and encountering these creatures that had the lower body of a man, but the head of a dog. Some of them were reported to be very hostile, cannibalistic, things of that sort. Mm -hmm. Doesn't get too much attention. I do listen to some other podcasts and follow things that pertain to Sasquatch and Dogman. I think there's something interesting going on there. There's a lot of people reporting sightings on these creatures. What is your take on that? It's certainly possible. I don't discount it. I mean, 25 years ago, I would have thought, nah, this is just uh, all bogus. But I, I don't discount it anymore. Um, simply because you, you have to admit the possibility of the supernatural if you are a Christian. Um, so I, I do. Uh, what are they? I don't know. I, I've got good friends who are otherwise rational, productive human beings who believe that they're real and uh, claim to have met people who tell credible stories of encountering these things. We've had a, a weird experience here. It, now we've not We've not heard this thing recently, but uh, there have been a number of times here at our home in the Ozarks where we will hear what appear to be human footsteps on the roof of our of our home. Uh, it's it's clearly a biped because it's not a, it's not a quadrupedal footstep, um, and you can tell by the weight on the decking of the roof that it's something that you know is is fairly substantial. It's not a bird, in other words. Uh, we're not close enough to the trees that it would be a cat. And again, the footstep is bipedal. Uh, Sharon had heard this several times and I thought, okay, well, maybe, but you know, maybe you were dreaming and you heard something until one night I heard it too. I heard a thump on the roof, like something had landed on it. And then I heard footsteps as though something was running from just above our bedroom towards our garage. And then Mm -hmm. a guest in our home heard the same thing. We also had an incident one morning where we were having a light rain outside and, uh, you know, springtime is kind of a mist, a drizzle. And uh, we uh, suddenly heard a thump, thump, thump on the roof. What the heck was that? So I went to look and noticed that the, uh, the, the umbrella that we have, you know, in the, uh, over the patio table, the patio umbrella was gone. Like, okay, what, now what's that about? Normally we put it down when the, when it gets windy because uh, the wind can kick up a bit and it will carry that thing, even with the 25 pound iron stand at its base. Uh, it was gone. And so I looked around, found it. It was in the front yard. Now there was very little wind out there. It was not the, because the uh, little floral arrangements, you know, the fake flowers in these little baskets that Sharon had put out on the patio table for decoration, they hadn't been disturbed. Yeah. If it had been enough wind to carry that umbrella and lift it over the front of the house, those would have been down in the yard as well. So what lifted that out and through? And that happened twice, actually, with that with that patio umbrella. It lifted Very it out of the 25-pound iron stand at the base and flung it to the other side of the house. Don't know what it was. Uh, but it wasn't the wind. So do I think something like a, a dog man or something might have done it? I have no idea. But I'm not going to discount the possibility that they exist. A lot of people are having experiences as I believe we grow towards the end of this age. Something happened to me. One of my cars, the starter, had failed. I'm over at my mother's house and I'm laying there in the driveway replacing the starter. She's sitting out there talking with me. Well, in broad daylight, I see an orb 
float. It must have been about 50 feet off the ground, Derek. And the thing gracefully floated. And I'm not talking about dandelions or you know a bubble or something like that. This was an orb. It didn't quite pulsate, but it had like an intelligent movement to it. Hmm. And this was very strange for me. I'm laying under the car. It's about 1030 in the morning. And I say, mom, look at that. Do you see that? So she stands up to look, but the sun was in her eyes. But because I was laying under the car, I was able to peer out. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously I'm explaining to my mom what I seen. Uh, I didn't feel any fear or anxiety about that. I just was very curious. I'm like, wow. So I didn't really want to tell many people. Just, that was an interesting experience for me. Well, Derek, it was only about two months later. And my stepdad races motorcycles. Mm-hmm. They have a couple sheds in a garage about 50 yards off the back of the house. And they have security cameras set up there because there is a public walking trail that goes along the Schuylkill River that's not too far at all from where these sheds and garages are. Well, my mom and stepdad are sitting in the house and they both get an alert on their phone that the camera has picked something up. Hmm. They both at the same time watch an orb. This thing is just floating (laughs) right in the driveway and glides by and kind of picks up and just scoots on through the whole video frame. I mean, it's like 10 seconds. Hmm. And uh, I know my stepdad then, you know, we kind of chatted with him and me and my mom were like, well, I, I seen an orb in broad daylight uh, just a few months prior. I didn't make a big deal about it. Kind of just let it go. You know, I didn't want people to think I was too weird, but now here we have an orb on video. And I think it's interesting. A friend of mine, Tony Merkel, who has the Confessionals podcast, I was chatting with him recently and he was telling me about a supernatural experience he had with somebody he believes was trying to put a curse or a hex on him. They they tried to coax him to come over and they said, oh, we want to hear about the Bible. And Tony, who's a Christian, but he interviews people who have strange supernatural encounters. He's like, okay. So he finally makes plans to come over to this guy's house. And you know, the guy ends up being a whack job. Yeah, tell him there's ghosts in the house and all the strange stuff. Tony's kind of like, eh, I got to get out of here, man. You know, I thought you wanted to hear the gospel. This isn't what you made it seem mm-hmm. to be. It's in the same neighborhood that <laughs> these orbs, I don't know if there's a connectivity there, but I think it's interesting. Um, I heard even LA say, Hey, there was a covenant of witches in Salem, New Hampshire, when he was up there at the American Indian Stonehenge, mm-hmm. you know, the, mm-hmm. you see covenants of witches gathering around these ancient megalithic structures. Sure. And there's got to be a connection. Yeah. In today's day and age, a lot of these things just go under the radar for the masses. People don't really understand what the Bible's saying and that there's an enemy that is warring against our soul. Well, and, and sadly, the church is not prepared for it because most in the church don't recognize it. No, you're right. Um, one of the things that really startled me was a couple of months ago when Abraham Hamilton III, who does a daily radio program for American Family Radio, really went into some detail and and played video from or played the audio clips from a a video interview that was recorded back in June between the uh, co-founder of uh, Black Lives Matter and the head of the uh, Los Angeles chapter talking about how their work is really spiritual more than racial. It's really a spiritual work and Uh describing what they do, this uh, ritual, there's no other word for it that they perform when they get together, where they say the name, say their name, and they repeat these names and call them out. Well, you know, I hadn't paid much attention to it. I thought, well, this is just like when at 9-11, we repeat, recite the names of the victims to, you know, honor the dead and, and just so that we don't forget who they are. Well, they said, no, no, it's more than that. When they're saying the name, they, are, they believe they are literally summoning the spirits of the dead so that the spirits of the dead can work through them 
to accomplish the work that they're trying to do. More than that, they pour out a libation, a drink offering for them when they do this. Now, that really rang a bell for me because that was a key element of the ancient Amorite ritual called Kispum, where they summoned the spirits of their ancestors, which had to be done every month on the 30th of the month, which in a lunar calendar is the night when there's no moon. I mean, even 4,000 years ago, they understood the night with no moon is the night when the veil is the thinnest between the worlds. This was the responsibility of the eldest son of the family, the, the heir of the family estate. He had to take over this ritual and summon the family, well, the, the spirits of the ancestors, but they were considered the family gods. The, the teraphim that uh, Jacob's father-in-law had, the family gods that uh, his wife Rachel stole, that's what these were for. This monthly ritual where you had to summon the ancestors and then you would feed them. Scholars have broken down the ritual from texts that have been dug out of the sand in ancient Syria, from ancient Syria, from ancient Iraq. The uh, Amorites brought this into Mesopotamia when they emigrated there around the 23rd, 24th century BC. They would take bread and literally smear bread on the faces of these little statues representing their dead ancestors to feed them. And then they would pour out a drink offering, a libation. The son who was responsible for this was literally called the pourer of water or the son of the cup. And this was such an important thing that people who didn't have children would make would would uh, contract to people who would perform this ritual after their death, because it was believed that if you died and you didn't have your descendants, if your descendants didn't perform this ritual, you were condemned to starve for all eternity. You would live on dust and clay if your descendants mm. did not perform this ritual. So here you've got in the 21st century on the streets of America, these people who are following the leaders of, of what they believe is a racial justice movement and believe that they're just performing a ritual to m remember those who have fallen in violent encounters with the police. When instead what the organizers of this organ of this group are doing in their minds is literally summoning these spirits, pouring out a drink offering to them and then concluding the ritual by saying, Ashe. Ashe comes from the, uh, religion of the Yoruba people of Nigeria and is part of their religion. Uh, I forget the name of it off the top of my head, but it is the, uh, basically it's the wellspring from which we get the, uh, religions in the new world, uh, voodoo. And, um, Oh, there, there's another that uh, is, is similar to it. Um, that I'm forgetting it. Uh, the, the Chicago White Sox manager back in, uh, 05 when they won the world series, uh, Ozzie Guillen was a, uh, practitioner of it. But anyway, uh, this is a, a religion that is literally dealing with the spirits of, well, demonic spirits, just like the ancient Amorites who believed that they were venerating the dead, just like the ancient Greeks and Romans, when they venerated the heroes, were literally venerating the spirits of the Nephilim, the origin of demons, as we showed in veneration, believed by the early church for the first 400 years after the resurrection. It was the default Understanding, it was the, the consensus of the early church that demons originated from the spirits of the Nephilim. This is described in the book of First Enoch. Um, again, it was Augustine who kind of got us off that track and uh, got us to an... No, no, no. It was the, the righteous sons of Seth who uh, married the wicked daughters of Cain. That's what Genesis 6 was all about. It's like, no, no. That 
that was not the understanding of the early church. That was the Sethite view, right? That's the Sethite view. That was not the understanding of the early church. When you read what the early church fathers wrote about the origin of demons, the consensus view for the first four centuries after the resurrection was that those were the spirits that proceeded, the hybrid spirits that proceeded from the the, the children of the sons of God, the Elohim, or the watchers, and the daughters of men. And we have gotten away from that uh, for the last 1,600 years. Thank you, Augustine. Brilliant theologian, but wrong on that point. But a key point on which to be wrong. Because now we see things like the Day of the Dead celebration in Mexico as nothing more than a cute cultural thing that Mexicans do to just honor the spirits of their ancestors. No, I'm sorry, but it's messing with demons and it's a, it's a practice that goes back more than 4,000 years to ancient Mesopotamia. And the Black Lives Matter co-founder, the head of the Los Angeles chapter, openly admit that that's what they're doing. They are performing this ritual on the streets of America today when they say the name. In fact, there's a video out there that people can find of um, uh, Dr. Uh, Melina Abdullah, who's the uh, L.A. chapter uh, head, performing this ritual and pouring out the drink offering inside a Methodist church in, in Hollywood. And the people there in the church are like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're you're making offerings to demons here. Uh, nobody's just no, no big deal. No big deal. Because we don't understand what we're dealing with in modern day America. The interesting thing to me is that, uh, and I'm not an expert on the history of the Yoruba people, but as I understand it, they emigrated west from the area of uh, Sudan around the uh, 8th or 9th century AD because they were pushed out by uh, uh, Arab Muslims who were expanding their territory from Arabia. And uh, so they may well have been in that uh, circle of cultural contact with uh, the ancient Amorites going back, you know, maybe a thousand years earlier um, and and uh, picked up on the, the practice then and then just brought it to West Africa when they emigrated. So, but whether it was physically through physical contact that way or just through contact from the spirit realm, the principalities and powers who intercede and intervene in human affairs, that ritual is now taking place in 21st century America on our city streets. Now, does that mean that these demons are being given more power because they're people doing the rituals? No, they've only got as much power as God is going to allow them to have. What it does say, though, is that there are more people here in America today who are giving those spirits permission to enter into them and work through them. And that's resulted in what we've seen is like the, the most costly period of violent protest in American history, the protests connected to Antifa and Black Lives Matter in 2020. Yeah, this year has been like no other time in my lifetime. No. <laughs> I agree. We wait patiently because we know the Lord is going to crack the sky like a supernova. He's going to pull back the veil. Mm-hmm. It's clear to see that the spiritual darkness is in overtime right now. They're in overdrive, just doing everything they can. I want to ask you about the Divine Council. Now, I know you said you spoke with Mike Heiser before. I'm aware of some of his work. Kind of mm-hmm. listen to a little bit of the Naked Bible podcast from time to time. He moves very quickly and covers a lot of deep ground. Share with me in the audience about the Divine Council. The, the Divine Council is a concept that was well known in, in the ancient world. In fact, that term is uh, more or less used in, in Psalm 82, and I'm going to try to bring it up here, so I'm not calling it, calling it up from memory. It made a lot of sense, and I, game, I uh, was basically just d- digging into the internet back in uh, uh, 2004, 2005, looking, looking for anything I could find that helped make more sense of 
the Nephilim. I mean, they, they had to be in the Bible for some reason. If the Bible is the, the word of God, and you've got this weird section that describes these mighty men who were of old in just four verses, and then you get another brief reference in Numbers chapter 13, the, the point of the divine counsel concept is that the spirit realm is a lot more active and a lot more, a lot richer than, than we've been taught in, in our churches. Uh, most American Christians don't believe that Satan is a literal entity. They think he's a concept or a force or a symbol of the evil that exists in human hearts. Uh, the Holy Spirit, just a symbol of God's love, not a real entity. Uh, demons, eh, you know, we, we haven't dealt with them since the first century. They, they kind of left us alone after the apostolic age. That, that's kind of the view that most American Christians have, but that's not the view of the early church. And I think we do them a disservice it's really condescending of us in the 21st century to say, well, you know, these apostles who were learning at the feet of Jesus, they really didn't quite understand the theology the way we do today in the 21st century. How arrogant is that? That that the apostles who were writing about things like principalities and powers and thrones and dominions, referring to literal evil intelligences who want to harm us, and saying, well, yeah, but they didn't really know. They were superstitious. They were primitive. They, they didn't have science and technology. We've been blinded by science. We think that we can solve everything with science. And many of us in the Christian church are guilty of that. And, you know, I'm the same way. I mean, you, you're raised up in America today with the idea that science has the answer to everything, that the only means of finding the truth. The only method of finding the actual capital T truth is through science. But science, as it's taught to us, begins with the presumption that if you can't see it, measure it somehow with our human senses, even with the use of instruments that we can then translate into signals that we can perceive, sight, sound, whatever, with our human senses, it doesn't exist. But we know that's observably untrue. I mean, how do you quantify a thought or measure an emotion we know they exist, but you can't see them or measure them. And yet we're willing to say that God does not exist because we cannot perceive him with our human senses or the instruments that we can create with which we you know, point at the stars or whatever. It is a, a fundamentally flawed worldview. And for Christians, it should be absolutely ridiculous. Our default setting should be a supernatural worldview. We claim to believe in a God who spoke the universe into existence and literally raised himself from the dead. And yet we are not going to believe that anything else exists in the spirit realm, even though his word tells us that they do. The, the term the divine counsel is found in Psalm 82. And this is something that Mike Heiser will point to and say when he was a young man, this is what really set him on his course of research because it's absolutely mind-blowing when you consider the implications here. This is essentially a courtroom scene in the heavenly realm. Psalm 82, beginning at verse 1, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Now, in Hebrew, that's Elohim has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of Elohim, he holds judgment. The word Elohim, like deer or sheep, is singular or plural, depending on context. And clearly, one cannot take one's place in the midst of oneself. So Elohim has taken the place in the midst of the Elohim, midst of the gods. Well, who are these gods? 
the Jews of the ancient world understood, the disciples and apostles understood, they were the, what we would call angels in English, who made up his heavenly court. We even see an example of this in 1 Kings 22, which is the story of uh, God talking to his council, his court, and asking, how are we going to deceive Ahab into going into battle against the Syrians so that he may fall in battle? And one spirit says one thing and another says another. And finally, one speaks up and says, I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of all of Ahab's prophets and will deceive him. Into, and, and God says, you, you will you do so and you will succeed. Go forth and, you know, go ahead and do it. Now, did God need any advice? No, of course not. Why did God, why does God have a council if he doesn't need it? He created them, the angelic realm, the inhabitants of the angelic realm for his own pleasure, the same way he created you and me. He doesn't need us either. And yet here we are having this conversation. And when you continue on through Psalm 82, you see God decreeing the death of the gods, which again is a mind blowing concept. This is not polytheism. But it's an understanding that the ancient Jews had. It's an understanding that the first century church had. The early church fathers had this same understanding. It wasn't until about the time of Augustine in the early 5th century that uh, the church began to move away from this idea that there were other small g gods in the spirit realm. And, uh, you know, th- that has kind of led to where we are today. Now, what I'm expressing with this, uh, this view, this divine council worldview is not the uh, default setting for most seminaries today. Most of our pastors come out believing that there is one God, and yes, one capital G God is correct, but we English speakers attach a certain meaning to that three-letter word G-O-D that was not the way it was understood 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago. The authors of the book, writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit, had a different understanding of the concept of small g-o-d, than we do. And all that Mike is encouraging us to do, all that Sharon and I are hoping to uh, encourage people to do and teach people to do, is try to see the world through the eyes of the men who wrote the words of the Bible under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Because, you know, they might know a thing or two. Derek, even when we look into like, you know, the ancient Greek culture, all the way from Africa to Northern Europe, the Middle East, Asia, the American Indians, they all have carvings etched right into the rock depicting battles and encounters with chimeras. And we see it written all over history. It's amazing. So what is the connection between these ancient mythological creatures with the Bible? I mean, how would you, you know, express what the Greeks were, were dealing with and writing about? And how does it all kind of intertwine together with the word of God? Well, that was really the, uh, the reason I wrote the book, Last Clash of the Titans. Uh, again, getting back to the idea of the Nephilim and uh, their, the term by which they were referred to later, uh, Rephaim, in the, in the course of researching my first book, The, uh, the Great Inception, I, I started just searching through academic papers, looking for references to the Rephaim, just to see if there were other cultures around the ancient Hebrews who knew what those things were. Uh, the, the Rephaim are mentioned... Uh, a little bit in uh, Deuteronomy and in uh, Joshua, I think there's a reference in there's a reference in Genesis as well. Uh, the the War of the Nine Kings, the five who come from the east to do battle against the uh, uh, the four kings, um, Sodom, Gomorrah, and their allies, and they have to defeat Rephaim tribes in the Transjordan, the lands later called uh, Ammon and Moab and Edom 
on the way down to uh, the region around the Dead Sea. So the Rephaim were known to the Hebrews, but did Moses just make them up to try to demonize, so to speak, the people that the Israelites were going to push out of the land of Canaan? Well, it turns out, no, the Rephaim were known and not only known to the Canaanites, but they were venerated, worshipped by the Canaanites. And there's evidence going back to the time of Abraham that uh, in northern Syria, uh, the Amorites, who, by the way, you, that's almost interchangeable with Canaanite. The uh, Canaanites were just Amorites who lived in the western part of uh, ancient Mesopotamia. Um, they understood the role of the Rephaim, who, uh, by the time of Moses and the Israelites, only Og the, the uh, conquest of Canaan, only Og was the last of the remnant of the Rephaim, but uh, they were venerated by the uh, neighboring Canaanites as uh, these mighty kings who lived in ancient times. Oh, okay. So those mighty men who were of old, the Nephilim, after death in the flood of Noah, their spirits were considered these... Uh, to have power in the afterlife. They weren't on the level of the great gods like Baal and uh, El and Asherah, but they they still had power to influence the uh, the land of the living. And just within the last 40 years, there have been several texts from the ancient Amorite kingdom of Ugarit, which is on the uh, Syrian coast, um, Mediterranean, that uh, summon the Rephaim to a ritual meal at the, uh, the sanctuary of El or the threshing floor of El. And by the way, when I'm saying El in this context, this is not El Elyon or El Shaddai, meaning Yahweh, the God of the Bible, but El, the creator God of the Canaanites, a different entity altogether. Um, this threshing floor or sanctuary of El or, or tabernacle of El is, uh, according to scholars, most likely the summit of Mount Hermon, which if you're familiar with the Genesis 6 account and the uh, parallel account in First Enoch, which expands on it. That's uh, where the watchers, the sons of God who saw that the daughters of man were fair, that's where they descended and made their mutual pact to corrupt humanity by taking wives, mingling their seed with ours, and teaching us things we weren't supposed to know. Um, so these Rephaim are summoned to this ritual meal where it is believed that the name of El and that's a whole other discussion, just the, the name theology. The name is not just the reputation of the God. There's a power to it. It's like another aspect of his, uh, uh, of his personhood. The name of El would revivify or resurrect the Rephaim. And these texts literally say that when they're summoned, they mount their chariots, they travel first one day and then another, and then arrive at dawn of the third day. So, I mean, that, that to me was mind-blowing, but what was even more astonishing was finding a paper from 1999 by the Estonian scholar Amar Anus, A-M-A-R-A-N-N-U-S. He's done some remarkable, and Mike Heiser will, you know, he's the one who pointed me in, in his direction. Uh, Amar Anus has done some incredible research in this area. He showed that the origin of the Greek term used to describe the men who lived during the Golden Age when Kronos ruled in heaven. Okay, now Kronos was the king of the Titans. The Titans were the old gods of the Greeks who were overthrown by Zeus and the Olympians and then cast down to Tartarus where they are uh, banished. And, you know, people might remember the movies Clash of the Titans and Wrath of the Titans and Percy Jackson and the Olympians and how Kronos is the bad guy. You don't want to let him out of Tartarus because he's really mean and uh, would be dangerous to set him free. Well, yeah, that's that's true. True enough. Um, 
this uh, term that applied to these men who lived in this pre-flood era when Kronos ruled in heaven, Merapes Anthropoi. Okay, Anthropoi is you know a reference to humans. You know, anthropological is the it comes from that word, but Merapes is the term that Homer and Hesiod, the two Greek poets, wrote a lot of what we know about Greek mythology, actually their religion. That word Merape actually derives from the same Semitic root from which we get Rephaim. And he established oh, that. Wow. So the Greek understanding of their heroes, the demigods of the Golden Age, the pre-flood age when Kronos ruled in heaven, derives from Rephaim. Like, oh, okay. That's interesting. And then he takes it a step further and shows that the origin of the name Titan in Greek, for which there really has not been a satisfactory explanation, derives in all probability from the name of an ancient Amorite tribe called the Tadanu, which are well attested in Mesopotamian history. The Tadanu were known in the middle of the third millennium BC. So we're talking 24, 2500 BC. The Sumerians were afraid of them, considered them a threat. They were wild, dangerous. They lived out in the open. They ate raw meat. They didn't, uh, uh, didn't live in proper houses like you know nice civilized Sumerians did. Uh, when they were buried, they didn't have proper graves. And, and, and in fact, the last Sumerian kings to rule over Mesopotamia, what scholars call the Third Dynasty of Ur, who ruled between about 2100 and about 2000 BC, just about the time Abraham was born. They actually built a wall near modern Baghdad, 175 miles long, to keep out the Tadanu. And and we know this because they found inscriptions that describe the name of the wall as, literally, the Amorite wall that keeps the Tadanu away. (laughs) The problem for the last Sumerian kings of Mesopotamia is that it didn't keep the Tadanu away. And around 2000 BC, their kingdom fell. There was 100 years of kind of a dark period. And then suddenly by 1900 BC, about the time that Abraham was making his way towards Canaan, roughly, Uh, All of these Amorite kingdoms were in control of everything in ancient Mesopotamia, from what is now western Iran to southern Turkey to even northern Egypt was under the control of Amorites. And uh, the chief god, of course, being, well, their creator god, El, the chief god, Baal, the storm god, known to the Greeks as Zeus, and uh, the rest of the pantheon. Um, So this is what is, and what has really been astonishing for me to learn is that over the last 40 or 50 years now, uh, it's just that recently that scholars have begun to realize, yeah, you know, there was this cult of the dead that venerated the Rephaim all around ancient Israel. And in fact, it even lured in the Israelites. Well, that was the point of the book Sharon and I wrote a year ago called Veneration on how this veneration of the dead In other words, the spirits of the dead Nephilim was a snare that drew Israel in even before they crossed the Jordan River to attack the city of Jericho. And how that was still a problem 700 years later when when, uh, Isaiah was condemning Israelites for eating forbidden food like uh, pork and and eating amongst the tombs where they were practicing these rituals. And we go into some detail about the Amorite rituals that have been attested going back to 23, 2400 BC. It was a snare, but we also showed then this, 
with this connecting paper really central to the whole thing, Amar Anus, and that uh, paper showing how the Greeks and their demigods were really just their understanding of the Rephaim that were venerated by the ancient Amorites and the Canaanites. So Heracles, uh, Perseus, Theseus, Bellerophon, Cadmus, all of them, by definition, were Nephilim. And the veneration of the heroes, the way they practiced it, was very similar to the rituals that the Amorites practiced with ritual meals held at the tombs where they were summoned by name. And that, as we showed in the book Veneration, was brought into the Christian church because it was so ingrained in the culture of the people who lived around the Mediterranean that the early Christian church wouldn't give it up. And it was Augustine in the early 5th century who said, you know, the souls and the spirits of the saints can intercede for us in this life. He tried to Christianize the practice, and that's how we get the veneration of saints in the Roman Catholic and Orthodox churches today. It all goes back to the Rephaim, the Nephilim. So these entities have been behind the scenes all this time, like meandering through and kind of like showing up in the secular culture as well to influence things and cause confusion. Uh, it's crazy to hear. It sounds crazy, but when you start looking at this and realizing that uh, the information on which we are basing our conclusions is peer-reviewed secular research from archaeologists and epigraphers who study these ancient texts, you can't reach another conclusion. This is not internet level research. And I don't, you know, belittle internet research because that's what got me started down this whole thing. But in order to make sure that we got the right conclusions, we wanted to go beyond, Absolutely. you know, stuff that I found at somebody's website or, or what have you. Show me the work of the archaeologist. What does this text actually mean? How does this connect to that? And when you, when you, start piecing the puzzle together, the picture becomes clear that yes, these entities have been interfering in human, uh, in human history since the beginning. Uh, and, and Mike Heiser explains it in his book, The Unseen Realm, which if your listeners haven't read it, they really need to as foundational to all of this. I'm on the edge of my seat right now, just listening. I'm like, oh my goodness. <laughs> so real quick, I want to ask you about this, Derek. In the Psalms where Jesus is saying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he goes on to say, and strong bulls of Bashan have right. encompassed around me. Mm -hmm. The bulls of Bashan, are they also in reference to the spirits of the Nephilim? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Bashan was the region to the south and southeast of Mount Hermon. And it was known in the ancient world as literally the entrance to the netherworld. Um, we knew that this was the case, but uh, Sharon and I stumbled onto some information from the Israel Archaeological Association or the Antiquities Authority, that's what I'm looking for, the IAA, the Israel Antiquities Authority, on the locations of dolmens in uh, the Golan Heights. Now, dolmens are, are megalithic funerary monuments that are made out of really, really big stones. A lot of them are uh, just a simple trilithon construction where you get two big slabs of stone standing vertically parallel to one another, and then like a tabletop across the top. Um, looks like a real simple version of, uh, you know, Stonehenge, put a bunch of them in a circle, you'd have something like Stonehenge. Well, there are more of them concentrated in a smaller area in the Jordan River Valley than pretty much anywhere on earth. I guess Korea actually has more dolmens than the, uh, uh, than the Jordan Valley, but, uh, from the Dead Sea up to Mount Hermon, there are something like 25,000 dolmens that have been found so far and 5,000 of them alone on the Golan. Well, the, the Israel Antiquities Authority has a map of the location of these dolmen fields. 
And uh, when you look at the map and just plot the red dots out on a uh, on Google Earth, it's like there's this big cluster of red just to the north end of the Sea of Galilee. Like, mm-hmm. Okay, now what what is that about? Um, and then you start cross-referencing that with some of these texts that have been translated just within the last 40 years from this ancient Amorite kingdom of Ugarit. And you find that in one of the stories, this is the, called the Epic of Akat, A-Q-H-A-T. Uh, Akat is a young hero who uh, uh, is the uh, son of the king, whose name is Daniel, interestingly. And uh, he's he's given this this really awesome bow by the craftsman god. Uh, and the war goddess, Anat, decides that she wants it. So she asks him for it. And he says, no, I don't think so. It, it's similar to the way the uh, in the Gilgamesh epic, he refuses the advances of the goddess Inanna. And Anat is, is kind of an aspect of Inanna, who is like the goddess of sex and war. Um, so he refuses to give her the bow. So she conspires and has uh, some other entity uh, kill him. And the father grieves, and uh, in this epic you read that uh, when I find him, I will grieve for him. I will bury him in a hole with the gods of the earth. And the gods of the earth, in Hebrew, it's uh, uh, Eretz Elohim. Now, it's written, not written in Hebrew, but that's the cognate for the uh, Ugaritic. Uh, but what he's referring to, bury him in a, in a hole in the earth or a tomb in the earth with the gods of the earth, he's referring to the Rephaim. So he searches and he, he repeats this, this uh, formula like three times. And finally, he finds the remains of his son and says, I will bury him in a tomb with the gods of the earth or for the gods of the earth at Kinneret. Well, Kinneret is the Sea of Galilee. So there's this understanding. And this, this text written about the time of the judges um, shows that even in northern Syria, near the border of Turkey, there was an understanding among people in the time of the judges that there was something special about burial for special persons who wanted to join the council of the the, the assembly of the Rephaim after death. These uh, uh, you know powerful entities, not as powerful as the big gods, but still you know powerful enough uh, that they would be buried at the Sea of Galilee in the land of Bashan. Like, all right, well that's really curious. Uh, again, remembering that Mount Hermon was the uh, location of the threshing floor or the tabernacle of El, the creator god of the Canaanites and his uh, assembly. Uh, but at the foot of Mount Hermon, Caesarea Philippi, also called Banias or Panias, the grotto of Pan, which was believed to be, even in ancient times, the literal entrance to the underworld. Our friend Dr. Judd Burton did his uh, doctoral dissertation on the religious history of Panias. And uh, scholars have found inscriptions in Greek that made it pretty clear that some of the sacrifices that were tossed into the cave, because that used to be the origin of the River Jordan, it it has shifted since then because of uh, earthquakes, that it was, uh, there were human sacrifices that were tossed into the the water there. And it was believed that if the, uh, the sacrifice sank, it was accepted. But if it didn't, if it just floated, it was rejected by the, the God, um, so there was something about that area that was believed going back at you know more than 3,000 years for sure, based on texts that we now have, that something about that whole land from Mount Hermon down to the Sea of Galilee was like a giant necropolis. And again, we've got all of these dolmens that probably date back to uh, 
oh, the time of Abraham or earlier, so 2000 BC, maybe even earlier. And then when you start looking at some of the other weird stuff that we've stumbled across there, I mean, Gilgal Rephaim, which is uh, what's called Israel's Stonehenge, except that it's older and bigger than Stonehenge. You know, the concentric rings, circles that uh, about 20 miles south of Mount Hermon, you can see Mount Hermon plainly on the northern horizon from Gilgal Rephaim. Uh, the scholar who's done the most recent excavation there, Dr. Michael Freakman, said that in all likelihood, this was part of a prehistoric cult of the dead. Okay. So, and, wow. and his most recent dating uh, pushes the, the construction of this back to probably about 3750 BC. So now, okay. Abraham, roughly 2,900 BC. Okay. That's when we start getting into historic biblical territory. Go back to 3750 BC, possibly as far back as 4000 BC. And you've got this huge monument engineered and, and built just for a cult of the dead. I mean, this thing is 500 feet across, uh, something like uh, 40,000 tons of stone compared to Stonehenge, which has got about 25,000 tons of stone. What's even more interesting is that when Dr. Freakman was excavating there back in 2012, they found an older wall um, outside the, uh, the area of Gilgal, uh, of the, the actual circle itself, Gilgal Rephaim, outside the outer ring, which apparently had been dismantled to build Gilgal Rephaim itself. So there was something else even older on that location. But what blew us away was after we got back from our tour of Israel in uh, 2019, and uh, I decided to look at the area in, in Google Earth, I wanted to determine the direction of the gates, because there are two gates that enter into this maze, one, in the, one to the northeast, one to the southeast. And I noticed a quarter of a mile north of Gilgal Rephaim was this long serpent-shaped ridge about a quarter of a mile north of Gilgal Rephaim. I Sharon, can you come here and take a look at this and see if I'm imagining things? She said, that looks like a snake. I like, well, yeah, it kind of does, doesn't it? So I remembered I had seen an academic paper about Gilgal Rephaim with a map on it that plotted out the locations of all of the dolmens and uh, burial cairns, these, these megalithic tombs that date back to this period of history, 3,500 to 4,000 BC. And lo and behold, all of the, the, the tombs in that area are clustered, with a few exceptions, but they're clustered on the back of this three-quarter of a mile long serpent-shaped ridge. Now, Interesting. Why would they do that? Now, is this ridge natural? Well, most scholars believe that it is, that it was just like a big blob of lava that, that hit the earth in a weird shape and cooled there. But it's 20 to 25 feet high. It's about 3,700 feet long, three quarters of a mile, which means that it is about three times longer and about four or five times higher than the Great Serpent Mound in Ohio. And it's covered with 130 dolmens and about a dozen megalithic cairns, which are just big piles of rock under which somebody was buried. Um, dated to that same period of history and maybe a little earlier. And what Dr. Freakman uh, said was that the thing that's really bizarre is that at some point around 3,500 BC or thereabouts, there, there were a few dwellings on the back of this, maybe, I don't know, the caretakers for the property. I don't know. But all of these uh, burial, to these tombs and cairns are on the back of this thing. None of them on the low ground 
between it, the quarter mile between it and Gilgal Rephaim, um, at some point they knocked in the, the, they, they appeared to have knocked in the roofs of these houses that they were dwelling in, blocked up the doors, broke all of the, uh, the, the basalt utensils that they used in the home, like bowls and things like this, just broke them and then set the whole thing on fire and then buried it and then left and was not resettled. Nobody knows why. Absolutely weird. Now, what does this have to do with the Bible and the biblical narrative? We're just saying, look, uh, we got this long serpent-shaped thing covered with tombs a quarter of a mile north of this big site for venerating the dead within eyesight of Mount Hermon in the middle of a place called Bashan. And, oh yes, the word Bashan in Hebrew is a cognate, which means same word, different language, for the Ugaritic word Bathan, which means serpent. In other words, Og uh-huh. of Bashan was ruling over a land that was literally called Place of the Serpent. And now, if you want to get into Revelation, what's even more strange is this. There was a, a myth in ancient Akkad, um, you know, the land of Sargon the Great, going back to probably 2600 BC. Now, l- bearing in mind that that was uh, probably what, 1,200 years, 1,300 years after this uh, long serpent-shaped ridge was abandoned, okay? Uh, there is a uh, an inscription, a, a, a piece of artwork that's on display at, uh, where is it, the Bible Lands Museum in in Jerusalem, maybe. But anyway, it depicts the, uh, the hero warrior god Ninurta battling a seven-headed serpent. And uh, one of the heads, by the way, seems to have suffered a mortal head wound. <laughs> For anyone who's familiar with Revelation chapter 13, that should ring a bell. But what's fascinating is that the, ty- the name of that seven-headed serpent in ancient Akkad is Bashmu. Bashmu is the Akkadian form of Bathan or Bashan. So you've got this seven-headed serpent that had to be defeated by the warrior god, in order to create order out of chaos, because that seven-headed serpent was just another name for Tiamat or Leviathan, the chaos dragon. (laughs) And and its name was Bashmu or Bashan. So Og of Bashan. Is it a coincidence that when Moses and the Israelites arrived, (laughs) their first military target was not Jericho, it was Og of Bashan. Yes. Oh my God. I know it's mind blowing. We're, we're going to write a book next it's, year. Uh, in, in fact, it, well, it may have been pushed back because we pitched another idea to Tom Horn. Uh, but we, we plan to write a book simply on um, this, this, this story of the uh, primordial serpent representing chaos that had to be defeated. Um, and certainly this, this, mound in Bashan will be part of it, but uh, it, that will probably factor into another book that we're writing next year anyway, um, on that whole region and the supernatural connections along the Jordan River. As I sit here and just listen, I'm I'm enamored. <laughs> You're a wealth of knowledge. You covered so many things tonight. I'm really excited for the audience to hear this episode. I hope Maybe next year I can have you back. Love to. I, I, I love to learn. And, I, you know, credit my mother. You know, God bless her. Mm-hmm. She's 83 years old and still with us. And uh, every chance I, I, I want to take every chance I have that. while she's still with us to give her the credit 
for teaching me to read and to love it and teaching me to learn and to love learning. Um, but more than that, she was a school teacher in her younger days, you know, one room schoolhouse in the middle of North Dakota, um, decided she didn't like the winters there and moved. But uh, anyway, that spirit, that that love of teaching too, I think has been passed down to me. So, uh, you know, when I get opportunities to talk for people who enjoy hearing the things that I'm excited about, uh, happy to do it anytime. Well, any last words you want to say to the audience before we uh, wind down to the end of the episode here? I, I know that a lot of us have been looking at the uh, the presidential election here, and it's really easy to get very angry about what has gone on. Um, I, I think anybody who thinks clearly and is not overly biased one way or the other can say, yeah, there are real inconsistencies here. It is just highly, highly improbable to the point of impossibility that uh, <laughs> that the man who's likely to be inaugurated January 20, 20th is, is, was actually the winner of this election. But the one thing we need to remember is that in all things, you know, January 21st of 2021, no matter who is inaugurated, God will still be on the throne. But we know, as Jesus told the apostles, that he has gone on ahead of us to prepare a place. In his father's house, there are many mansions. And if it weren't so, he would have told us. God is still in control. And if he's allowing this, it's only because he's getting ready to do something. Something perhaps even more incredible than we can imagine. So we are to keep in the word, keep praying, and then stand back and marvel at what God is about to do. Well, that's it. That's the show, everybody. I hope you enjoyed this with Derek Gilbert. What an excellent episode. If you found this episode, just help you look at things different and got you on the road to digging deeper into God's word. I ask you share this with a friend. Coming to you from Southeastern Pennsylvania, God bless America, and good night. Thank you.